You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. The ribbons signify that we've just ended another liturgical season. The season of Christmas concluded just yesterday on Epiphany. Today on Baptism of the Lord Sunday, though, we turn our attention to this question of what does it mean? What happens in our baptisms? And typically on this Sunday, we would turn to one of the Gospels for an account of Jesus' baptism. Each of the four Gospels tell us the story of Jesus being baptized there in the River Jordan. But today, I want to do something slightly different. I want to turn our attention to the book of Acts, to an application, if you will, of baptism in the early church. We meet Paul here as he is arriving in the city of Ephesus. This is, many scholars agree, the beginning of Paul's third and final missionary journey. And as he enters into Ephesus, he encounters a group of disciples Now, we're not really told much about who these disciples are. They're just disciples. And the account that we get are these verses we hear now from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7 of what happens next. Let us listen now for a word from God. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? And they replied, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then Paul said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they answered him saying, into John's baptism. Now Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, these disciples, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. And altogether there were about 12 of them. Friends, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon is titled, The Weight of a Thousand Hands. Will you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, send your spirit now that we might feel it pressing down upon our lives. Send your spirit, O God, that it would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered together here in your sight and use them, O God, to your glory. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a wonderful scene in Marilyn Robinson's 2004 Pulitzer-winning novel, Gilead, It's a scene where the narrator, John Ames, explains how as a child, he and his friends once happened upon a brand new litter of dusty barn cats somewhere out on the edge of their farming community called Gilead, Iowa. 
being, as Ames puts it, very pious children from pious households in a fairly pious town, the group of youngsters found it only appropriate that these small four-legged felines should be welcomed into the world with a proper christening. And so down they went to the creek where, as Ames recalls, I myself moistened each of those little kittens' brows, repeating and fold the Trinitarian formula. Eventually, the way the story goes, the kitten's mother found these children baptizing her brood and she began carrying off her kittens one by one. And concerned, Ames writes, we lost track of which was which, but we were unfortunately fairly sure that some of the creatures had been born away with the darkness of paganism still hanging to them. And that worried us a good deal. A mass cat baptism. Now in the story, young John Ames, he eventually grows up to be a pastor, the third in a generation, a third generation rather, in his family. And reflecting in his later years back on that memory of those cats and that creek, he comes to find deep meaning underneath the absurdity of that scene. He writes in the book, I still remember how those warm little brows felt under the palm of my hand. Everyone's petted a cat, but to touch one like that with the pure intention of blessing it, well, that altogether is a very different thing. It stays in the mind, he writes. There's a reality in blessing which I take baptism to be primarily. It doesn't enhance sacredness, he says, but it acknowledges it. And there's power in that doesn't enhance sacredness, but it acknowledges it. And there's something powerful in that. And I think it's easy for us to read our passage today from Acts with an air of incredulousness or criticism. Paul, after all, is the giant of the early Christian movement, this stalwart, indomitable figure who has made it his life's mission to ignite and nurture and correct the scattered communities of fledgling first first century believers. So it's understandable for us to open up to these verses in chapter 19 and to hear Paul speaking with a tinge of admonishment in his voice, as if he is talking down to some woefully misguided group of disciples. What do you mean you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit? What kind of baptism were you all baptized into? It's easy for us to hear Paul speaking with a tone like that, but I worry that if we do, we actually get it wrong. You see, it's not that these disciples were somehow unfaithful or inauthentic followers of Jesus because they had not heard of the Holy Spirit. After all, remember in Luke's telling of Jesus's life story, it's not until after Jesus's death and resurrection that the promise of the Holy Spirit is even made. All of this is new. There's not much time that has passed from the actual event of Jesus's resurrection to the point we meet these disciples and Paul there out on the road in Acts 19. All of it is fresh. All of it is new. They're all trying to still make sense of what the resurrection means, much less what baptism means. Which is probably why I prefer Eugene Peterson's take on these verses. 
And his message, paraphrase of the Bible, Peterson translates Paul's words that we might hear critically. He translates them this way. Having happened upon these disciples, Paul speaks to them in the message paraphrase. And he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you take God into your mind only or did you embrace God in your heart? Did God get inside of you? That's how Peterson imagines these words of Paul. Did you only take him into your mind or did you embrace him too in your heart? Did God get inside of you? Right? It's not that John's baptism is wrong or bad. It's just that it was incomplete. Paul is not angry in this encounter. He simply recognizes that something is still missing. Did God get inside you? Or are you still missing that peace? Paul is teaching that repentance and forgiveness, it's only the first step in our baptisms. The second, and I would contend the all-important step, is to let our baptisms and the good news that is proclaimed there, to let it wrap its arms around us. To let that love of Jesus Christ, which has been given freely to us, though we do nothing to deserve it, to let it change us. To let it work upon our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. Because with John's baptism, right, we might get by with just showing up every once in a while. With John's baptism, we can get by with just giving a little here or there. With John's baptism, we can get by with treating people as nice as we know how, volunteering some if we have time or energy. We can get by with just sprinkling a few kind acts or kind deeds into our everyday lives for good measure. But Jesus' baptism invites us to take a second step. It tells us that there's actually more With Jesus' baptism, it involves allowing God's gravity to take over our lives. Allowing that divine love that washes over us at our baptisms to move from our minds down into our hearts. Because it's only when it gets into our hearts that it can be pumped out into every vessel of our bodies. And it can be a frightening thing. To let God have that kind of freedom, that kind of rule over our lives. Because what that can mean when we actually allow Christ's love, that claim to move into every nook and cranny of our lives, it means that God's command to care for the poor, it becomes something not just theoretical for our lives. It means when God calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, it means it actually has to be practiced in real flesh and blood. Right? It means in Jesus' baptism that we, our lives, are not our own, that we are connected one to another. I was telling the contemporary service and the chapel service earlier, I've been reading a lot about this epidemic of loneliness that our culture and our nation and our world is living. So many of us feeling isolated. It's amazing to me because it's the exact opposite of the life God calls us to. It's actually that kind of isolation and loneliness that we are sent to go towards in our baptisms because in our baptisms we are invited into this life where we are not alone. 
What Kara point out to the kids? The people around us are integral to what baptism is all about. When we face loneliness in these communities, I hope you will come and sit with me. And when you are sick and hurting, my call is to come and sit with you. Not to offer you kind words that will make everything better, but to just be present. In our baptisms, we are called to this recognition that our lives are not our own. We are connected one to another. But that can be a scary thing, to wake up one day and realize that situations across town or across oceans, they're not just headlines in the paper, they're situations that we are called to care about, to even go towards. It's hard when people will look at us funny because we are these oddballs who proclaim hope in the face of fear and cynicism and despair. It can be frightening to let God move through our lives with that kind of freedom, but at the end of the day, Paul says, our baptisms are sheer gift. Because in our baptisms, God has reached down and picked up our dusty, frail lives and taken us down to that creek of grace and mercy. In our baptisms, God has touched our brows and blessed us and named us and claimed us as beloved. And because baptism is a gift, our lives are then meant to be a thank you. Did anyone else have a family that taught you whenever you get a gift, what should you do next? Write a thank you note, right? I don't know, many of you dropped off every kind of sweet or uh, high-calorie treat this past month at the church for all the staff to enjoy. I think I'm like 20 pounds heavier. It's been hard for me to actually keep track of who I owe thank you notes to. So if you were someone who dropped off something for us, thank you. (laughs) Right, today is the day, though, that we remember that the greatest gift is that God has claimed us and the waters of baptism. And so our very lives are meant to be thank you notes. Right, the font over here, it's not meant to be the pinnacle of our faith journey, but rather the very beginning. It is the point from which we are all sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness, giving thanks to God each step of the way. In just a few moments, we're going to ordain and install these women and men who have said yes to serving as officers in our church. And as part of that, we're going to model what Paul actually does in these verses. We're going to lay hands upon those who are being set apart for these particular roles of ministry. I remember at my own ordination to the ministry of word and sacrament, being surprised by the sheer weight of all of those hands on your shoulders. Anyone here ever had someone lay hands on you, either as part of a service like this one or perhaps a smaller group somewhere? It's incredible the weight of all those hands pushing down upon your shoulders. It's like suddenly God's presence becomes manifest. You can feel it pressing down upon your life.
powerful. Now today, the Holy Spirit we acknowledge is of course not just given to me or the pastors or those who are saying yes and being ordained and installed. It is in and working through each of us through each of you as well. Like the weight of a thousand hands, it is pushing down upon each of us so that the love which has claimed us will not stay only in our minds, but be pushed down into our hearts that it might be pumped out into every crevice of our lives. That is the promise that we claim at our baptisms. That is the promise that claims each of us, even now. And so the question, I guess, that we are left with each baptism of the Lord's Sunday is how will that promise shape your life in the year to come? Or said differently, what will our thank you note look like in the year to come? Will those who are sitting next to you, those who are just beyond these walls in our community, will they be able to see that God is in us? Will they be able to feel in our lives, in our service, and maybe even in our hands the love of Christ, dwelling upon them as well. Friends, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, wash anew over us this day. Through these waters, O God, whether poured upon us long ago or just last week, or waters that will claim us in the days, weeks, and years ahead. We pray, O oh God, that your spirit might press anew upon us and that through its work, O oh God, we might be led out into the world that others might know that we have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and sent to serve and love as he serves and loves us even now. It is in his name we pray. Amen.